Well, we have one of those troubling parables this morning, the parable of the wedding banquet that a king gave for his son, and it's troubling on a number of levels. A traditional reading of the story goes something like this. The parable is seen as an analogy. The king is compared to God, whose invited guests are the people of Israel, and they decline the invitation, killing the king's slaves, who are, of course, the prophets. The king, God, responds to that by destroying their city. This destruction, reminiscent of the flood in the days of Noah and the fall of Jerusalem in the time of Jeremiah. It's what might have happened in the wilderness when the people build a golden calf, but for the intercession of Moses. So then the king invited all kinds of people from the streets, the riffraff, the good and the bad, you and me, Jew and Gentile. But even then, there is this business of the guest who wasn't wearing a wedding robe and who was quite properly speechless when he was cast into outer darkness. And most interpreters point out this was clearly a different kind of parable, a story that Matthew's added on here because of thematic similarity to the one that went before. And then struggling to make sense of it, say something like, well, even when we're in the the banquet hall, we still have to pay attention because we might get kicked out, something of that sort. That's... That's a traditional reading, and it's, it's fine as far as it goes. That's, if you've heard this parable before, you've probably heard that kind of interpretation. But I'm left wondering, why would Jesus compare God to a violent, slave-owning, capricious, demanding, and demeaning king? Is that a God we want to be worshiping? Is there another way to grasp what Jesus is saying here? See, he says the kingdom of heaven may be compared to, and he goes on, a king who gave a wedding banquet. What if the kingdom of heaven is something in the whole story? What if this is a parable more than an analogy? What what if the story really is about a nasty, demanding, capricious ruler of this world who lifts up people and casts them down on whim? No wonder no one wants to go to his party. You know, maybe the king is a ruler of this world, and the world is one in which we try our best to protect ourselves against whim and caprice in life. And we focus on ourselves and our own needs and keep focused on our own farms and our own businesses. And when things go wrong, perhaps those businesses fail or life has done us wrong in some way, not lived up to our expectations, then we, we look around for people to blame We look around for people who appear greedy, or we look for people who are different, convenient objects when we wish to vent our spleen and proclaim our righteousness in anxious days. And so we live in and participate in even a world of violence and destruction, even when we recognize the the caprice and whim that give rise to such dreadfulness. Is it possible Jesus saw all this Jesus saw all this in the world, that he knew our sin, that he unmasked our ways for managing the world other than by trusting in the one who is trustworthy, God the creator, other than by caring for the weakest among us, other than by being the kind of community we were created and ordered to be. Is it possible that the story of the kingdom is what happens when the kingdom of God is in our midst perhaps even something we don't always recognize, and so a story of what the world does to the one who does not wear a mask, as it were, who does not wear the right clothes, who doesn't dress up and just appears at the banquet 
naked, as it were. And so the person whom the king casts out, the powers of this world destroy and kick into utter darkness, is the one who sees the truth and who names it. Is it possible the kingdom is present in the victim? Is it possible that's where we find God? If so, if so, then the way Matthew tells the story is no accident, no mere arrangement of the material by subject. Oh, another wedding banquet with an angry king. Let's throw that in here. Instead, it's the whole story revealing the kingdom and not a simple analogy. It's a description of what happens and what is going to happen. And so when Jesus tells it, it becomes another prediction of his passion on the way to Jerusalem. So if that's right, and if this is a parable of the kingdom in the midst of a world of violence and caprice, then it's a story for us and a challenge for us. Look at what's happening. Every day we're greeted with news of the collapse of our financial system, a kind of global equivalent of an old-fashioned bank run. Maybe the various rescue plans and interest rate cuts will help in restoring confidence but they're not really going to put Humpty Dumpty together again, not immediately. It's as though we're subjects of a capricious king or even a false god. It's what happens to us in the parable. A headline from last week talked of how countries in the European Union were all looking out for themselves first before they started cooperating. One went to his farm and another went to his business. Every day there's someone new to blame. We hear about the last eight years of failed policies as both candidates try and distance themselves from the oversight in which they both shared for a particular view of the free market system. Anxiety runs rampant. I don't know about where you live and work, but everyone's feeling sort of stressed out. See how people are driving in the streets. There's, there's, there's an anxiety building in our, in our country. And someone, someone says at a political rally, kill him without immediately being challenged. That's what happened to those slaves. We hear about greedy bankers on Wall Street, the same ones, incidentally, who advised us on growing our pensions and our college funds and have shown us how to grow the money we think of as belonging to us because we somehow deserved it. The language of that mythical beast called the market is the language of faith. And our false god is a capricious and a temperamental king. And we, of course, we meaning all of us in the world, are acting according to type if the parable is true. So where is the one without the garment? Where is the one without the mask? Where is the one who sees our folly for what it is and who knows that in anxious times we're looking for someone to blame so that we can get back to business as usual, restore confidence in the market so we don't have to be so worried so we can get on with our lives? I think Jesus will be, the kingdom will be present wherever there are victims, both within our community and outside it. Those who have been advised in good faith that we'll be able to live off our life savings invested in stock markets, those who work for banks with bad debts, businesses that will fail, churches that will not be able to fund ministries, and people who live near the edge in the first place and allowed to fall off it challenge here is if that we are the body of Christ. If we are the presence of Christ in the world, then worse, first we need to stand together and find ways to speak and be with those who are the most vulnerable in our midst and beyond. 
It's not necessarily a time for new programs, and it's certainly not a time for sentimentality about the behavior of those among the poor who deal drugs in our courtyard every night and, and who leave syringes for our sextants to pick up every morning. But if Jesus was predicting his passion in this parable, then we have to be the community we were called and created to be, standing with the victims, lamenting what is false in the world, and holding up and being a sign of a true God against the false one, of a true Lord against the false emperors, of a Lord that is trustworthy and in whose love we can face anything. A number of us attended our parish weekend at Canoogle last week and were led through almost an extended meditation on baptism uh, by Giles Fraser. Baptized in dirty water, he said. It's about... It's not so much about cleansing and washing, it's about drowning. And Will White, who was baptized in dirty water, knew that it felt like drowning as he went under. We're not going to do that to your children this morning. <laughs> but the image, the image is right. We are baptized and raised up to the new life of grace, to be part of a community that is a sign in this world of God's love, we strive to care effectively without creating dependence on us because we know our dependence on God for life. We're a community who follows the one who shows us the destructive ways in which we behave in a violent and bloody world and who calls us every week to remember what is of ultimate worth and live a different way. We follow one who was cast into outer darkness for being different, who was raised on a cross for refusing to dress up and dignify this world of coercion and the worship of false gods, the false god of the market. So my prayer is that we will live in trust and we will live without anxiety because we know that we are loved and we can face anything, even the loss of our pensions, perhaps even the loss of our jobs, perhaps even the loss of our ministries. We know that we're in God's care and that in God's care we can face anything and so perhaps be a non-anxious presence in an anxious world. So perhaps not only be a sign but the actual bearers and ministers of good news of God's grace because we know we are loved. And so we welcome into this community of faith others who will become signs and ministers themselves. Frequent prayer on my lips is that God will shine a light on the paths prepared for us to walk in and will grant us grace and courage to walk those paths in the assurance that we are loved by God. Is there a better prayer in response to the parable of the wedding banquet than that? In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.